as uh, Dana mentioned at the beginning of our service, today is Pentecost Sunday. And as uh, I was thinking about that just this morning, we remember when the, the Spirit came and came at tongues of fire and rested upon the, the disciples and filled the disciples and the believers. And I was thinking this morning about what that, th- those events were like. And just before that happened, the disciples were all gathered together in one place and they were scared. They were frightened. They were overwhelmed. That everything that they had spent three years building their lives on, some sense of security, and they, did they get it all? No, but they had put their faith and their trust in this one man, in this rabbi. And then all of a sudden, he was gone, and their lives were rocked. They were grieving. They were hurt. They were scared. And I think some of you watching this can probably relate to that. That this morning, you're grieving, you're mourning, you're scared. You don't know what's next. And then the Spirit came, and he filled them up, and Peter goes, and he preaches a sermon, and one of the first acts of the Spirit was to bring people together. That everyone, uh, people from all different tribes and tongues were gathered together, and as the disciples preached, they were able to hear them in their own languages, a miracle by God, and an undoing of separation. In Genesis 11 is the story of the Tower of of Babel, where uh, the people were separated, their languages were confused, and from that point, people could not work together, but they were separated. And when the Spirit comes, he takes people who were different, people who had reason to look at one another with skepticism, because I don't know what you're about anymore. And he brought them together. We need that this morning. On this Pentecost Sunday, my prayer is that the Spirit does the same work again. Many of us, if you're watching this, I'm guessing you speak English, we all speak the same language, but we still can look at each other and we question, oh, I don't know about you. I'm not sure about you. Whether that's because of the way that we dress, the way that we carry ourselves, where we live, or the color of our skin, the professions that we have, whatever it is, we can feel like we're, we're missing each other. We're not even speaking the same language. But for followers of Christ, this morning on Pentecost Sunday, I pray that we would remember the work of the Spirit and that we would once again be able to hear each other, that we would once again be unified and brought together. This morning, we're going to talk about the importance of of remembering. We've been going through uh, the book of Exodus and hearing the the story of God saving his people, hearing the cries of his people, uh, working in the life of Moses and Aaron to go before the most powerful man in the world and to free his oppressed people. We've heard about the plagues and we've heard about the beginning of the Exodus, that they have left Egypt. And this morning in Exodus 13, they're going to be challenged to remember. But I think we need to remember as well. That we as humans have always been bad at remembering. We say things like, I'll never forget this moment. I'll never forget this lesson. I'll never complain again. But when difficult circumstances arise, we forget and we act the same way. And I want to acknowledge this morning that our ability to remember is made worse 
when we're in traumatic circumstances. That when we are dealing with trauma, our ability to remember is, is worse. To remember a time when we could hope, when we could dream. To remember that there once was a time where God had worked on my behalf. To, for, it's difficult for us to remember that progress has been made. It's difficult for us to have hope that progress will continue. So I acknowledge that this morning, that right now as a country, we are facing traumatic moments. People are mourning. People are feeling hopeless. And so my prayer this morning is that the words that God has laid on my heart address those who are mourning and those who are fighting despair. I invite you who are not feeling hopeless and desperate not to judge the reactions of those who are I don't think that's what God has called us to do, to tell people that their reactions to their personal traumatic events are too strong or too weak. But instead, we're, we're told by Jesus, blessed are those who mourn. Not because it's good to have bad things happen to you, but blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted. Because they are close to God. God is close to them in those moments of pain. And that is our job as the body of Christ, is to draw near to those who mourn. As Paul says in Romans, to mourn with those who mourn. Not to tell them that they're mourning too much or not enough, but to mourn alongside them. We believe that what the psalmist says, that God is close to the brokenhearted, and I want to be where God is. And so I want to be close to the brokenhearted as well. And so if you are not feeling the same sense of trauma and emotions that maybe your black and brown brothers and sisters are feeling right now, now is not the time to tell them whether they should or should not. Now is the time to draw close to them, to mourn with them. That's what God is calling us to do. And so as, as we watch what unfolds before us, on news, on social media, uh, through the reactions of other people. I invite you to set aside your ideologies, your politics, and whatever else might hold you back from mourning with those who mourn, and view your fellow image bearers and honor their grief and sit with them. To those who are mourning, who like me this week have had to battle hopelessness in the wake of overwhelming tragedy and a chaotic response, I wish I had a revelation from God that was a quick fix this morning. I don't have that. What I have is what God has laid on my heart, some truths that God has brought me back to that allow me to stand on a solid ground and to remember, to remember that God has worked in the past, to remember that God has never let me down yet, I don't think he's going to start now in this moment to remember that I have reason to hope. So my prayer this morning is that what God has laid on my heart will do the same for you, to give you a solid ground to stand on, to give you something to hope for. The year 2020, I don't need to tell you that this has been a crazy year. Each week, it seems like we are still dealing with the mess of that week, and then we are handed a whole new mess to sort through, to grieve, to wrestle with, to figure out how we're going to respond, how are we going to move forward. The anxiety of one loss has not even started to dissipate when all of a sudden, 
we get another one thrown at us. And so this week has brought another set of losses, another set of anxieties and troubles. Our black and brown brothers and sisters, some are feeling hopeless this week. Many of our white brothers and sisters are feeling hopeless this week about what we are to do. How are we to respond? Citizens in cities across this country have risen up in protest, not because they are thugs, not because they are bloodthirsty opportunists, but because they are mourning, they are despairing, they are otherwise hopeless. They feel like there's one set of rules for those who are in charge and another set of rules for citizens. What we are seeing play out is their attempt to regain control and therefore restore hope in their lives. You don't have to, we don't have to approve every action and every response that has happened. We don't have to co-sign the methods that some people have taken to restore hope and restore control. The riots, they don't need to be romanticized and glorified, but we can still give honor to the grief that people are feeling. For over three months now, we've been in the midst of a health pandemic. At this point, over 100,000 Americans have died, and another 40 million Americans have put in for jobless claims. 40, over 40 million people are now out of work. 100,000 have lost their lives. These realities of lost loved ones, lost income streams, and the many fallouts that come with both of those things are leaving people feeling hopeless. Working from home or being at home without a job has exposed cracks in relationships, and the enemy has used this moment to pull at the seams to rip families apart, and husbands and wives and children are left feeling hopeless in their situations, in their relationships. Now, if these current events weren't enough, in one way or another, we're all experiencing these current events together, but our normal life events have a way of driving us towards hopelessness and despair, making us forget that God is for us. There are parents who are struggling with the behavior of their children, and they feel hopeless. You may be wrestling with your sexuality and you have gone to scripture and you have pleaded with God to get rid of feelings that you are told and feel are sinful, but they persist and you're starting to feel hopeless. Am I a bad person? Is there any hope for me? Will my family understand? You may be struggling to get pregnant. You've been trying to have a child for years and it's beginning to feel hopeless. You may have children and you're drowning in that reality of parenthood and it's starting to feel hopeless. You've been longing to be married and it's starting to feel hopeless. Whether you feel it right now or you have felt it before, we have all felt hopeless. But today's message is one of hope. That when we are in the midst of trauma, it can be hard to think straight. It can be hard to remember. Hard to remember a time when you were happy and energized and hopeful. Hard to remember a time when you could dream and plan for the future. Hard to remember that though there is a lot of work ahead of us, 
that there has been progress made. Hard to remember the times that God has shown up and worked on your behalf. It can be hard to remember that the God who showed up in the past is the God who is working right now. And so this week, I've had to remind myself many times, some days on an hourly basis, to hope. The problems in my own head and in my own house often feel too big for me. And then when I look out into the world and I see injustice, anger, and hate, and unrest in the world around me, it can lead me to hopelessness. Not because there isn't a reason to hope, but because I forget I forget that God has moved. I forget that God is working right now. I forget that God has promised us a future where there's no more death, there is no more crying, and people from every tribe and every tongue and with all sorts of beautifully colored skin will sing together in a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. What a beautiful image that is, and yet it's surprisingly easy for me to forget. But this morning, we're going to remember. We as a people, we forget. You've forgotten things. I would normally, you ask for people to think about something. But I can't ask you to think about something you have forgotten because you've already forgotten it. And you know that this is a reality, that we are people who forget. And this is not something that's new. We've been reading through the book of Exodus And we're not quite at a point where the Israelites show their ability to forget. But we're close. We're really close. In just a couple weeks, the Israelites are going to be at the shore of the Red Sea, and they're going to complain. I wish we would have just died in Egypt. And then the waters part, they get on the other side, and they start to complain again. And then we're hungry. We wish we had food. And then they get food, and they complain. We're eating the same thing every day. They forget. And we can read those stories, and we can be like, they're so dumb. How are they so dense that they have forgotten? But we do the same things. We say, I will never forget. And what do we do? We forget. Now, there are moments that you will never forget, good and bad. I'll never forget my wedding day. I, I won't forget the, the emotions that were a part of that, the feelings, the excitement. Uh, I won't forget that we got married in Florida on the beach. It was a beautiful week all week, no rain. And then as we started to head onto the beach to where we were, uh, myself, my groomsmen, and uh, Pastor Mark, who uh, officiated our wedding, as we were heading to our places, the wedding director stopped Mark, pointed, and said, see those black clouds of imminent doom? Uh, They are heading this way, so make it quick. And uh, we did, we made it, Before the rain came, typical Florida, it rained for like 10 minutes and then it was beautiful again. But I won't forget those moments. I won't forget the moments that my three daughters were born, the emotions that that came with that. I won't forget uh, my oldest brother when he passed away. He was 16 years old. I was eight or about to turn eight. And I remember I was at my aunt's house. Uh, Me and my younger brother had left because we knew it was coming and uh, thought it was best to give my parents and my, uh, my two older brothers kind of time alone as the younger ones who didn't get it as much went away. And I remember waking up that morning and just knowing and just waiting for my aunt to tell me. I won't forget that moment. <clears throat> but there are plenty of things I have forgotten. 
things that in the moment I said, I'll never forget this. I'll never do that again. I'll never, I've learned my lesson. And then I've repeated those behaviors. I've heard during this time, students who have said, I'm never going to complain about going to school again. This is, I'm stuck at home. I can't go anywhere. I miss, I miss my friends. This is so hard to learn online. I give it two weeks at most, once you're back in school, that we start to complain. You may have missed your commute to work. I give it one traffic jam before you are complaining again. We are a people who forget. But God knows this about us. Surely there were Israelites who were thinking, I'll never forget this. They have watched the 10 plagues. They have watched God with the Passover, the angel of death come over. They have participated physically by, by sacrificing an animal, spreading the blood on the doorpost, waiting anxiously, uh, cooking their unleavened bread so they can make a quick escape. escape. Surely there were Israelites saying, I will never forget this. God has acted so good on our behalf. I don't care what the rest of my life looks like. I will remember this moment. And as I said earlier, and as you'll see in the coming weeks, it didn't take much for them to forget, to start to complain. God knows our deficiency in memory, and God knows we are quick to forget his goodness. God knows that it's not just our fault. God knows that the intensities of the suffering and the struggles of this world will consume us and that we will forget his previous faithfulness, grace, mercy, and power. And so it's for this reason that God repeatedly instructed the Israelites to remember. And not just to remember, but to build practices, rituals, feasts, and holidays around events that would keep them connected to what God had done for them. And so this morning, as we are struggling to forget that God is working for us, we're struggling to remember a hope. Would we remember? Would we learn from the Israelites that we have to build practices and rituals in our lives that will help us to remember that even when life is difficult and feels like we are being crushed, that God is on our side. That the God who heard the cries of his people 3,500 years ago is hearing the cries of his people now, and he is at work. That brings us to Exodus chapter 13. We'll be looking uh, at Exodus 13, verses 1 through 16, but for right now, we're just going to read the first two verses. So in those verses, uh, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. So this is, the, in this chapter, this is the first thing that the Israelites are to, are to do in order to remember, to consecrate to me every firstborn male, the first offspring of every womb of the Israelites, both human and animal, belong to me. This word consecrate means to set apart or to dedicate. So the Israelites were to take their first, firstborn son and dedicate them to the Lord or to set him apart for the Lord's work. 
You may know that the Levites were the tribe that were the priest over Israel. But that doesn't happen. God doesn't specifically set them apart until Numbers chapter 3. So before the Levites took over all priestly duties for Israelites, it was assumed that the firstborn male of each family would serve as priest. And so this setting apart, this dedication happened in that way. That that was one of the things that setting apart meant was our firstborn will be our representative for the family before God. And why this? Why the firstborn male? This was a special recognition of God sparing the first son, firstborn sons of Israel. Last week, we looked at uh, the events of Passover, the first Passover, and the way that Israel was to remember the Passover, Passover feast uh, for the rest of time. So Passover was a commemoration of the event surrounding the 10th plague and the exodus out of Egypt. So too was this, the consecration of the firstborn. So now we have God ordering his people to have a yearly feast to remember this one event, but also to remember this event through the consecration of their firstborn sons and the firstborn of all of their offspring, the offspring of all of the animals. Why? Why all of these events to remember this one thing? Because if you don't believe me yet, I'm going to keep saying it. We are a people who forget. So God now has asked Israel to institute not one, but two different ceremonies to help them remember. God has acted in powerful ways, ways that we are still reading about, that we are setting aside Sunday mornings to talk about. But he knows that while progress has been made for the Israelites, there are struggles up ahead, and the Israelites, like us, are likely to forget his goodness. So he invites them to remember. Why the firstborn? We saw because it is representative of what happened at Passover. But also, the first is a representative of the whole. We see this with even the offering of the first fruits of the harvest that Israel was supposed to do. There's something deeply symbolic, but also spiritually formational about offering the first thing to God, whether it's your son or the first fruits of the harvest. It is an indication that we only have because God has given to us. It is an indication that whatever remains also belongs to God. And it's an act of faith that in giving up that which comes first, we are expectant for God to deliver again. If, we, if all we give to God is what remains, we are not sacrificing. We are giving him our leftovers. Leftovers are normally reserved for the trash can, the garbage disposal, or our dogs. We don't give God our leftovers. We give him what is first, because we are, we are by faith saying you will provide again. If in our budgeting we fill out all of our item lines to make sure all of our bases are covered, and then we say, okay, there's a little bit left, I'll give this to God, either by giving it to the church or to missionaries, to uh, nonprofits that are seeking to do justice in the world, or whatever the thing is, I'll, I'll give from my leftovers. If the only time that we give the only time we give time to God is right before we fall asleep at night or 
in, before we have a meal, and it's just sparingly and throughout the day that we turn our minds and our hearts to God in prayer, we are not sacrificing our time. We are necessarily saying that prayer is not a priority. If the only time that we show up to church is, and you are all dying to show up to church right now, but if the only time we show up to church is when it's convenient, when I've had a good night's sleep, when I haven't had too much work to do, when the weather's not too nice, it's not raining too hard because I don't want to go out in the rain, but it's not too nice so I don't want to go play golf or go down to the shore. If that's the only time that we show up to be with our brothers and sisters in Christ, then we are not sacrificing. And so God calls for Israel to give up of their firsts because the first represents the whole. By giving up your first, you're saying all of it belongs to you. One of the reasons why we gather on Sundays, the first day of the week, is because our Sundays belong to God, our Sunday mornings belong to God, but the rest of the week belongs to God. So we give to God what is first. Whether it's the Old Testament version of sacrificing the firstborn lamb, burning of the first fruits of the harvest, or the consecration of the firstborn son, or if we are giving to God financially first, prioritizing time with God in prayer and in his word first. We continue to trust God to provide. We remember God's faithfulness in the past. We acknowledge that our money, whether we keep it or we give it away, is a gift from God. We acknowledge that our time, whether we use it selfishly or for others, is a gift from God. Here, God asks Israel to acknowledge that their children are gifts. Here, God asks Israel to both remember his faithfulness in the past and to put trust in him for their future. It's not just the firstborn, but all of the children who are the Lord's. And by consecrating their firstborn, there is a constant reminder of that truth. The firstborn son in this culture represented the joy and the hope and the future of their family. And so by consecrating, setting apart, dedicating this son to the Lord, you are dedicating your family to the Lord. You are acknowledging that God has shown grace and favor to your family. So God, to help Israel remember his kindness and mercy shown to them during the Passover, instructs all of Israel to consecrate their firstborn sons. For some time, this means that the firstborn, when he comes of age, will serve as priest for the family. But this practice continues even beyond that as a reminder for the way that God showed mercy to his people. But God is not done with reminders yet. So let's pick up in verses 3 through 10. Then Moses said to the people, Commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. Today, in the month of Aviv, you are leaving. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites, the land he swore to your ancestors to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you are to observe this ceremony in this month. For seven days, eat bread made without yeast, and on the seventh day, hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. On that day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. 
This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time of year. So now we have another way to remember what God has done. This festival of unleavened bread was first brought up in the previous chapter. And here it is revisited. Here we have another moment where Israel is asked to go to great lengths to remember. They would have the Passover feast and starting right after Passover would be this festival of unleavened bread. So here another moment will, where Israel is asked not just to remember but to go to great lengths to remember. They are to go one week, one whole week where they eat unleavened bread as a reminder of the time that they fled Egypt. A whole week of unleavened bread. I'm tired of unleavened bread just having, say, having to say it over and over again, just thinking about it. I do not want unleavened bread, but to eat it for a whole week. This is what they are asked to do. And if that were not enough, there is to be no yeast or leaven, anything with leaven in it in their homes and God says, within your borders. You have to go to great lengths to remember what God has done for you. For seven days, there will be no yeast in the house or within the borders. And so you are moving furniture to see where crumbs have fallen. You are going through the pantry, looking through all that is in your house, and you're making sure your neighbors are checking, they're checking, you're going outside, making sure all of the yeast is outside of the borders of Israel. This is not simply bringing back to mind what God has done. This is going great lengths to remember what God has done. And notice that this is not just for this generation. God is not telling them to remember. God is saying when you get to the promised land, you are to remember. That is generation, that is the next generation that will be able to experience that. But it's not just for that generation either because God says when your son, he says to use this as a teaching tool, on that day tell your son. So I'm going to keep pounding this drum, but we are a people who forget. So God asks Israel to set up these rituals and these practices so that they remember not just so they remember, but so that future generations will remember the goodness and the power and the mercy shown by God. We cannot teach, we cannot pass on that which we forget. You cannot effectively pass on gratitude for the ability to go to school or to have a job if you do not remember to have gratitude for the ability to go to school or to have a job. You cannot pass on stories about the goodness of God if you do not purposefully remember the stories of God. God asks Israel here to use something physical to remind them of something spiritual. And God does that all of, all of the time. Here, they are to use their food and their sons to remember God's provision during the Exodus. God does this elsewhere as well. We take communion using ordinary objects of bread and juice, things that are discarded regularly. But we use them to remember the spiritual significance of the death of Christ. Even our marriages, physical union between a man and a woman is used to remind us of the spiritual union between Christ and the church. God also gave the Israelites the Sabbath. 
a practice that we do differently, if at all, than the Israelites did, but one that takes something simple, a day, another day. But we assign meaning to it so that we can remember. We rest. We change the way that we live. And we do these practices as reminders for us But we do these as teaching tools for younger generations and for a lost world. These practices are supposed to stoke curiosity. On that day, tell your son, Mom, Dad, why are we getting rid of these loaves of bread? Why do we have to clean so well? Why can't we have that fluffy bread? This flat bread doesn't taste good. These practices build opportunities for us to teach our children, our nieces, our nephews, our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, the stories of God's goodness. When your child comes of age, you don't just surprise them one morning with a fully decorated tree in your house and gifts underneath of it. Christmas is something that we observe, that we prepare for. Christmas is a way to remember the birth of Christ, the gift we were given in Jesus, but it's also a teaching tool for our kids. We do some weird things at Christmas. We bring trees and we bring them inside. Your kids are going to ask, why are we doing this? Why do we set apart a whole day? Why do I have a whole week off from school? This is an opportunity to teach your kids, to teach a wondering world about why we observe these things. And I think because we are a people who forget, we need to go back to being a people who intentional, intentionally choose to remember, that we do weird things, that we go to great lengths to remember. We have things that have been built into the broader culture like Christmas and Easter, but I think we need more ways to remember the goodness of God. Maybe the Spirit will stir in you some uh, creative imagination of what those things can be for you and for your family. Maybe the Spirit brings something new into your family that you can use. I think that would be awesome. But I think we can adopt old ones and breathe new life into them, like Sabbath. We live in a world that beckons us to work and work, to buy our way to happiness, to work ourselves to death for the next promotion, that we are only as useful as we are profitable. That if we can't point to the things that we have created and accomplished, then what good are we? But the Sabbath says, no, that's a lie. We take a day where we say, enough is enough. I have worked enough. God has provided enough so I can rest. I am not the one who brings about my happiness or my well-being or my security. There is a God who does that on my behalf. And so today I rest. What if your Sabbath meant for you that you didn't spend on the Sabbath? You didn't go to the grocery store. You didn't rent a movie from On Demand. We didn't order anything from Amazon. We didn't go for our Wawa, Dunkin', or dare I say Starbucks. What if our Sabbath meant we spent an entire day without a screen in front of our face? We bought an alarm clock and a landline, and we ditched our phones, TVs, computers for 24 hours. Not because any of those things are evil or sinful or bad by themselves, but because we are a people who forget and we have to go to great lengths to remember what God has done for us. And because these great lengths will build curiosity. What do you mean you don't buy coffee on Saturdays? What do you mean you don't watch TV or text on Sundays? Why? 
Why do we do it this way, Dad? Why do we do it this way, Mom? And on that day, tell your son, tell your daughter of the way that God has worked on your behalf. We are a people who forget, and we must go to great lengths to be people who remember. Be that consecrating your firstborn son, eating unleavened bread for a week, or practicing Sabbath once a week, or whatever other practice reminds you of the goodness of God. Let's close out by looking at verses 11 through 16. Here we read, After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you as he promised on oath to you and your ancestors, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. In days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn of both people and animals in Egypt. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. Here we have a reiteration of the call to consecrate the firstborn. In verses 14 and 15, we see again that this is to be a teaching tool. That the, as the firstborn of every animal is sacrificed or redeemed, at some point the children will ask, why do we do this? Then they are to retell the story of God bringing them out of Egypt through the killing of the firstborn in all of Egypt. Not all of us are parents, but if you are a follower of God, then you have a role to play as a follower of God. We are, called to, we are called by God to stand out, to live different, and to lead lives that cause people to ask, why do we do this thing this way? We are a people who forget. But God knows that about us. And so in his grace, in his mercy, God has invited us to remember God has given us reminders of who he is. We gather on Sundays to remember the resurrection. We sing songs of his love and his mercy. We take communion to remember his death by crucifixion. We take a Sabbath to remember that we are not our hope, but that God is our provider and our hope. What is God calling you to do or to stop doing in order to remember? Israel was asked to sacrifice the firstborn animal because it was through the killing of the firstborn that they were freed from their slavery and their oppression. We are not so different from them. In Romans, Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers. In Colossians, twice, in Colossians, twice Paul refers to Jesus as the firstborn. The author of Hebrews refers to a gathering of believers as the assembly of the firstborn. The author of Hebrew, sorry, I just said that. Let us not forget that this is not made, a made-up story that we are reading in Exodus. It's not about people who lived long ago. It's not for Jewish people only. The Israelites were saved through the death of the firstborn 3,500 years ago. But 2,000 years ago, the death of the firstborn brought salvation to the world. This story is about us, 
God's people were being oppressed and killed and justice was nowhere to be found. But God came. God showed up. God acted on behalf of his people and through the death of the firstborn in all of Egypt, God struck down the oppressor. We must remember that it was God who brought the victory. It was God who brought the death of the firstborn of all of Egypt and it was God who brought mercy to the firstborn of all of Israel. This doesn't mean that there weren't actions for the Israelites to take. They had to sacrifice a lamb. They had to spread its blood on its doorposts, cook their unleavened bread, and take the trek out of Egypt to the Red Sea and to walk across it. Moses and Aaron had to go before the most powerful man in the world, and they had to have trust that they believed God and they feared God more than they feared this man. 2,000 years ago, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God has arrived and there is freedom in his name. It is the blood of the firstborn that has washed away your sins. It is in the name of the crucified firstborn son, Jesus Christ, that the devil must flee. Strongholds are broken by the name of the firstborn son. The oppressed find freedom in Jesus. The outcast finds a home because of the firstborn son. The abandoned and the fatherless now have a father who they know loves them. Because of the sacrifice of the firstborn son, the lost have found their way. Jesus came. Jesus humbled himself. Jesus gave up his life. Jesus did the work. This doesn't mean there isn't actions for us to take. We are called to love our neighbors, which is a never-ending task. We don't get to wake up in the morning and look at our checklist and check off loved our neighbor. It is something we have to do continually. We love our neighbors when we are stuck at home for months and we only see them through mirrors or screen doors. We love our neighbors when we go out to stores. We love our neighbors when we pray. We love our neighbors when we vote. We love our neighbors when we work. The work of loving our neighbors is never finished. Some of us are called like Moses and Aaron to speak truth to power, to say that you are killing God's people, but God will bring about justice. We are a people who forget, but today we remember. We must become a people who remember. We must not forget that acts of injustice that we have seen, but we must not forget that God sees them too. That God is the one who acts. God is the one who moves. God is the one who brings justice and restoration. God is the one who brings comfort to those who are mourning. God is acting and moving, and he's calling us to act and move alongside him through acts of love and sacrifice. We must not forget that the God who has acted in the past is acting right now. We must orient our lives in such a way that we are constantly being reminded of the goodness and the mercy and the power and the presence of God. We must remember that it... It was with a servant's heart that the firstborn of all creation, 
the only begotten Son, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and he is now esteemed and sitting at the right hand of God. We cannot put our hope in the structures of this world, in the people of this world. Our hope is when we remember what God has done for us. We cannot be a people who forget. We must be a people who remember. Would you pray with me? Lord, this morning, at least in this moment, we remember that from the beginning of time, you have been acting for us. That what followed the first act of rebellion against you was a promise of deliverance. A promise to make things right. And from that moment until Jesus arrived, you were working to that end. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we now have freedom. Freedom from our own sins. Freedom from the powers of this world. Freedom from guilt and from shame. Freedom from feeling like we're alone, feeling like we'll never be enough because you have said we are worthy. And Lord, you are still working through your people. As Paul says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Right now, Lord, there is a temptation to think that our enemy is flesh and blood, that our enemy is our brother or our sister that our enemies are fellow image bearers. Lord, I pray that we would remember that our enemy is not flesh and blood. It is principalities and rulers and structures and evil forces in this world. And that through prayer, through acts of love and sacrifice, the example that we remember was set before us by Jesus Christ, that we would fight our enemies in the same way. The anger of man does not bring about the righteousness of God. It is through love. It is through self-sacrificial love that hearts will be changed. That broken and corrupt systems will fall apart, not because we were strong enough, not because we are good enough, but because we have a God who acts on our behalf. Because we have a God who loves God who is willing to lay down his own life. Lord, I pray that we would remember where our hope comes from. Remember the ways that you have overcome this world. Remember the fact that you have overcome this world and we can do the same thing. We can live into that victory. And so this morning, Lord, we reject hopelessness we reject despair, we reject racism, we reject anger and violence because we remember. We remember that there is a God who is working, a God who hears the cries of his people, a God who did not watch from afar and hope that we were good enough, but a God who came down and laid down his life for us, a God who has called us to do the same. So I pray that we would pick up our crosses so that we can lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters, so that our victory can be realized in this world. We look forward to the vision that you lay out before us 
of a world where there's no more crying, no more death, no more sadness. And that hand in hand with our brothers and sisters from every tribe and tongue and nation, we will sing holy, holy, holy is the God who remembers, the God who hears his people. May we remember you this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, church.